Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, the briefest possible housekeeping. We are one week away from the presidential election in the United States, and um, I'm sure I will have a Zoom call for podcast subscribers at some point immediately following a result. We don't know how long it will take to get a result, but I will pick my moment and we will announce it by the usual channels, probably email and Twitter, and it'll be another video Q&A on Zoom. And if you want to participate in that, you can subscribe to the podcast at samharris.org. Okay, today I'm speaking with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas is a physician and sociologist, and he directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University where he is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science in the Departments of Sociology, Medicine, Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Statistics and Data Science, and Biomedical Engineering. He is also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science, and he's the author of several books, Connected, Blueprint, and most recently, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And that is the topic of today's conversation. Nicholas and I cover a lot of ground. We talk about the breakdown of trust in institutions and experts, the corruption of science by politics, the ineptitude of the Trump administration in handling the pandemic, whether the gravity of COVID-19 has been exaggerated, using this experience to prepare for future pandemics, whether it's true that COVID deaths are being overreported, bad incentives in the medical system, the prospect that the coronavirus will evolve to become more benign, the efficacy of current treatments, safety concerns about a rushed vaccine, the importance of public health communication, when life on Earth might return to normal, the economic impact of the pandemic, long-term social changes that may result, the future of universities, Nicholas's personal habits to keep from getting the coronavirus, the importance of rapid testing, and other topics. Anyway, this is an up-to-the-minute look at the state of the pandemic, and certainly a timely conversation prior to the election. And now I bring you Nicholas Christakis. I am here with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Sam, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. So yeah, you are now a um, a multi-repeat guest, and um, <laughs> so I know I'm in good company. The The first couple of times were just a dress rehearsal, but now you can be a co-host whenever you want. <laughs> but briefly, remind people what your, your station in life is and uh, how you come to know or have strong opinions about many of the topics we're going to touch. Oh, goodness. Well... I'm a physician and a social scientist, and I've spent my life or my career in academia doing scientific research and taking care of patients up until about 10 years ago. I was a hospice doctor taking care of people who are dying. But I run a moderately decent-sized lab at Yale University now doing science of different kinds. We have a bunch of different groups in my, in my laboratory. We do everything from sort of quantitative public health research to work on the microbiome to 
classic sociology research to we, we have a, actually a social robotics division. We work on artificial intelligence. Anyway, we do a whole bunch of cool things. I'm very proud of them, this group of mine. And I teach students as well. And I've lately become very interested in the evolutionary origins of, of human social interactions, and most recently, in the pandemic, in the mm. COVID pandemic. Yeah, well, you, unlike many people, have managed to put this pandemic to very good use. I mean, you, I, we've, we've been under the shadow of this thing for about eight months now, and you have managed not only to write a book about the pandemic, but to publish it. And uh, that is astonishing if you are at all familiar with the, the usual time course of writing books and publishing them. And that book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And that is out just this week. As we release this, that should be available to anyone online or in your bookstore if you are intrepid enough to visit your local bookstore. <laughs> so I want to talk about COVID, obviously, and I want you to bring us all up to the present in terms of what we should know about it at this point. And also to forecast you know, what you expect to see in the next year or so. But I want us to use the pandemic as a lens through which to consider much else that's ailing us, because we're, we're living with a significant breakdown in our ability to acknowledge a shared reality. I mean, and this is based on the deliberate spread of disinformation, which I've devoted a few podcasts to. It's also based on how our, our natural biases are being amplified by technology. I mean, social media has weaponized our, our confirmation bias and our tribalism and our other less than epistemic ways of thinking. And the result is that we're finding it harder and harder to collectively acknowledge the same set of facts, much less agree about what to do in response to those facts. So we're dealing with this total pollution of our information space, and it's affecting everything. And as a result, our, our trust in institutions, you know, whether it's the government or the press or universities or you know, scientific journals, is at an all-time low. And worse, given what is happening, it probably should be at an all-time low. I mean, it's, it's just, I'll just give you one sign of the times that, that happened recently. The New England Journal of Medicine published a a truly blistering editorial about how badly the Trump administration has handled COVID, and and I read that, and you know, I basically agreed with every word of it. And you know, we we can we'll get into the details there. But then I noticed that my Twitter feed just lights up with allegations that the New England Journal of Medicine is financially tied to the Chinese Communist Party at this point, right? <laughs> now, I don't even have time to figure out whether or not that's true, right? It's like, like it's, you know, but nothing at this point would surprise me. But I have no time for this because you can literally hold your breath until the next scandal arises that seems worthy of your attention. I mean, they, they happen over the time course of minutes now. So it's just a crazy space to even be having this conversation in. And so I want us to focus on COVID and, and get deeply into it. But I think we should talk about the way in which politics in particular is deranging the information space and science itself at this point. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we could even start with that. I mean, I was scribbling some notes about topics for us to discuss as you were, as you were speaking, and there's so many directions we could go in. But I, I guess with one predicate, we could start with that, sure. which is that 
we happen to be alive at a moment when we are experiencing something very unusual in the in the history of our species and that is that a new serious widespread pathogen has been introduced into our midst and this only happens once every 50 or 100 years and and one of the themes actually of my book is that you know this feels very alien to us this 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 risk of death this 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 fact that we have to uh spread out this collapse of our economy but I, I guess a very important idea is that plagues are not unusual for our species. This is just new to us. We think this is so weird. We think this is so unusual. We think this is so unfair. But really, epidemics of this kind have been afflicting us for, for thousands of years. Uh, that is actually an interesting story about prior to 10,000 years ago, prior to the agricultural revolution, what were such epidemics possible? And, and the gist of it is probably not. Mm. But, but anyway, f- from the time we invented agriculture and moved into cities, we, we've been prone to this. And in fact, the, the title of the book, Apollo Zero, comes from the opening of the Iliad, in which, in, in, in fact, there, there's a plague. I mean, that's, you know, that's, what, that's how old these, this phenomenon is. You know, mm. 3,000 years ago, Homer was writing about this. Anyway, so this, this, this germ has you know, which has a, its own, it's a, we can debate whether viruses are living things or not, but for the sake of argument, this germ is acting like any other living thing. It's found untouched virgin territory, namely our bodies, and it's just, it's just having what's known as an ecological release. It's just spreading relentlessly among us, just like if you had let rats loose on New Zealand a thousand years ago, they would take over the whole of the country. So there's no natural immunity to this pathogen, and it's just doing, having its way, you know, just going about, it, about its business. But leaping ahead now with that background to the point you put on the table for us to discuss initially, it's odd to me the way this virus is striking us at a particular moment in our own national history. I don't know about global history, but certainly national history, because the virus has struck us at a moment in our political life, which is very inauspicious for us, but perfect for the virus. Mm. So we, we've have a th- what I would call a thinning out of our intellectual culture. We, we have a denigration of expertise. You know, we, we think that there's something evil about experts or that they're self-serving, which is really odd because when you need a car mechanic, you want an expert, right? And there's this there's this famous saying in sociology that you know one man's occupation is is made up of the emergencies of other people. So mm. you're, when you have a flood in your basement, it's a rare event and an emergency for you, but it's the routine daily experience of the expert plumber who comes to repair it. So why we have this attitude or this posture towards expertise is itself very odd, but we have a kind of anti-expertise, which is a reflection, I think, of a kind of anti-elitism that we have in our society right now. There is, in addition to that, as you described, a kind of denigration of science or a disbelief in science or a, or a politicization of science, whereby scientists are seen as just any other, like any other interest group, you know, trying to feed at the public trough, instead of seen, I think, more rightly. Of course, I'm very partial to scientists and science, but I recognize science's limitations, and we can talk about that as well. But this idea that that if scientists tell us something, it, there must be an ulterior motive rather than trying mm. to engage science as science is also very dangerous ascendant ideology in our society right now. 
And there are two more items which I'll mention, and all of this causes quite a witch's brew. Another, of course, that everyone is familiar with is the political polarization, which by many metrics by political scientists show that we're at a moment in our history when we're very politicized, such that even a simple act like wearing a mask becomes seen either as a as an indicator of virtue, oh, you know, I'm a, on the left, you know, I'm a good citizen, I wear a mask, the symbol, this mask symbolizes my commitment to the commonweal, or, you know, the mask is seen as an infringement on my liberty, you know, like I'm on the right, you know, I should be allowed to do what I want, how dare anyone tell me to wear a mask? This is ridiculous, it's just a mask, you know, mm. it's just, it's just a, a, a barrier to the spread of droplets, you know, it's, it doesn't need to be politicized. And many other countries, incidentally, do not politicize mask wearing. It's not seen as a political act. And finally, to this witch's brew, is this extraordinary loss of capacity for nuance in our society. And I know you talk about this a lot, Sam, on this podcast, which is why things are seen as black or white. I mean, every topic, why we can't acknowledge that there's shades of gray, there's uncertainty, there are intermediate steps. You know, you don't have to be with me or against me. You can be partly with me, you know, or you can recognize that this is a complicated topic, you know, whether it's whatever we're talking about. There's this sort of desire for simple perspectives on the world that I think is, is not in keeping with the nature of the real world. So all of these things, the denigration of expertise, the disbelief in science, the polarization, the loss of nuance, this is when the virus is striking us. Mm. and boy, has this sapped our ability to respond effectively. Mm. Well, let's focus on the political co-opting of science. And this has happened, the pressure has come from both the right and the left here in, yes. in different ways. And, and in different topics. Yeah, and it, but in, to a degree on both sides that has revealed scientists themselves to be all too human, right? So, so the, some of the skepticism and despair over over the kind of the loss of the stature of scientific opinion here is understandable given just how craven so many scientists have shown themselves to be i mean so to see what's happening on the right or at least in trumpistan where where you locate that on the political spectrum is sometimes difficult but mm. what we see is this effort to please the delusional boy king and it results in some of the most reputable people in public health walking on eggshells around this monstrously ignorant and belligerent president. And so we have, mm. you know, Anthony Fauci, you know, who has the, the most stellar reputation yes. of anyone. He's been writing, right? He's been writing about respiratory pandemics since before, not before you and I were born, but but you know, for decades, um, yeah. yes, we're very lucky to have him. But still, most of his energy seems to be bound up in an effort to not embarrass the president, right? And yeah, but he's found that almost impossible to avoid doing. And then we have someone like Dr. Burks, who, you know, in, in those first weeks and couple months of her prominence you know, seemed more and more like a, a hostage with Stockholm syndrome, right? And then <laughs> and Robert Redfield, who's running the CDC, appears just visibly neutered whenever he's communicating about COVID in public. And none of this inspired confidence in the beginning. And since most of these people have almost entirely disappeared, I trust for also for political reasons. So there's that sort of the lack of 
credibility in the public face of the messaging, but then there's a a reasonable concern that the Trump administration has so vitiated the the scientific expertise in government, you know, whether it's at the CDC or the FDA or you know in the, in the EPA. Mm-hmm. I mean, just across the board, pre-COVID, this was happening, and has been replacing career civil servants and scientists with political lackeys and and industry lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And given the ineptitude of our response to COVID, it seems worth worrying that. You know, maybe we're no longer the medical and technical superpower we, we once were or thought we were. And you know, this culminates in things like Harold Varmus, another person with a, a totally stellar reputation, writing an op-ed in the New York Times declaring that we can't trust the CDC's guidance about whether to reopen schools, right? So there's, there's a kind of yes. just a breakdown in, in authority here. Yes. And then from the left, we see this the moral panic around wokeness in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in the midst of the pandemic. And we see this insane double standard endorsed Mm -hmm. by literally thousands of public health officials, where they declare that the protests against the lockdown were, you know, murderously irresponsible, but protests in support of Black Lives Matter, you know, as if by magic are are not only okay, they're, they're actually necessary. Right. Yes. And that and so that's where so we have the left and the right competing in this insane sort of reputational potlatch to see who can destroy <laughs> their their gravitas, you know, more quickly. And so it's that's the space in which that our, our our political partisanship has just made a, a mockery of, of scientific communication. Well, I mean, this is a very complicated topic, obviously, that you've you've goes in many directions and you've alluded to quite a few of them. And I know you've thought deeply about this too, but First of all, you know, one of the principles of democracy is that we get to elect our leaders and we have an executive branch that is responsive to the people we elect. Now, you could make the argument that the people voted for Donald Trump. You, there are, of course, side arguments about how more people voted for Hillary and blah, blah, blah. But we had the system we had. He won the election. And therefore, it's a reflection of our democracy that we, the will of the people is that the scientists be muzzled. Which is a kind of an odd conclusion to come to, but you know, you could in fact somehow make that argument that it is reasonable or correct or a working of a democratic right that uh, the scientists are being muzzled. And yet, we believe all of us, certainly I do, that there should be a way in which science could be outside of politics. Otherwise, you get a kind of Lysenkoism, right? During mm. Stalinist time, you know, genetics was seen as a discoveries in evolutionary biology and genetics were seen as a great threat to communism. Because communist belief wanted to believe that we could change social structure and therefore change human nature. And so, in, you know, in, in writ large, discoveries in evolutionary biology and genetics were seen to subvert that, you know, that there could be a kind of innate human nature. And so, of course, Lysenko, um, you know, had a kind of Lamarckian idea about acquired traits, and he arranged for people who didn't agree with him to be shot, you know, other scientists. Uh, As one does yeah. when reviewing scientific papers, one doesn't like Yes, yes, exactly. Who, who, who among us wouldn't want yeah. his, his peer reviewers <laughs> to be shot? So this, this temptation to have politics interfere, as you said, is, is, is longstanding. And, and also, incidentally, another historical strand in this is that science often is expensive and, and is a luxury and has been done at the public purse, you know, whether it's da Vinci or Galileo, you know, working for the Medicis or, or Seneca or Euripides, you know, working in uh, the, the king of Syracuse, et cetera. I mean, since time immemorial, 
there's this sense, which is that you know scientists work for the king in a in a sense. But the problem we have right now is 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 even more complicated than that for various reasons. Not just the fact that it's the modern era and we have institutions which are supposed to provide ballast against the boy king, as you said, is that what is the dilemma of a good and wise person when there is incompetent leadership? And you know, Socrates writes about this, Plato writes about this as well. Let's say you're General Mattis or your General Kelly or your Tony Fauci or your anyone else who is trying to figure out like my allegiance is to the nation. And if I serve in this administration, I will I be tainted? Or do we only do we want competent people to refuse to serve on the grounds that their reputations will be harmed? Well, that can't be the right answer mm. because you know we want competent people running. On the other hand, if these competent people serve, do they then lose their souls? Or do we get this kind of subversion of the scientific process? I mean, when do you resign? When do you say, no, I will not implement this policy or I will not be quiet? So there are rules how quickly Fauci cannot easily be fired. There's a process whereby he can be fired, unlike, Cap unlike uh, the Secretary of Human Health and Human Services. I don't know about Redfield and his position specifically, how easily he can be fired. But you know, many of these people are probably reasoning, I can do more good than harm. You know, I'm, I know I look like an idiot. Uh, not Fauci, but you know some of the others. Mm -hmm. But you know, I I need to help the country, and and I can mod you know moderate some of these, you know, ridiculous extremes that the political um, elites are forcing on us. Anyway, it's hard. I mean, it, it's very hard to know what to do in this type of a situation. And I'm not making apologies for anyone. And I and I put the blame squarely at the feet of the political leadership, Trump and the administration, for the utterly inept response the United States has had. Let, let me just say one more sentence about why I think it's especially appropriate to hold Trump responsible. Because unlike, let's say, you could reasonably argue that certain other leaders, you know, like the, the British and the Italians, for example, also got it wrong. But the difference is that the president of the United States has the CDC working for him and the National Security Agency working for him. And he was told in December what was going to happen. Unlike the rest of us who couldn't necessarily have known what was going to happen, the very best epidemiologists on the planet you know, work at the CDC. And we have, I believe, the best intelligence agencies. And by the time, we'll probably come back to this, by the time I started paying attention to this in January, we now know that even as early as December, the president was briefed. Mm. So that's really a dereliction of duty. You know, to be told that a pandemic is coming by people you should know are reputable, are not making this up, and to ignore that or fail to take action, to fail to use the wealth of this nation to prepare, to put PPE in place, to build testing capacity, to do all the things that are recommended. Incidentally, the CDC has released every three to five years a playbook on how to cope with respiratory pandemics. The Obama White House, actually after the Bush White House, had also bequeathed to Trump such a playbook. But even leaving aside the political transmission of this information, in the CDC, you can you can go online and it says, you know, plans for a respiratory pandemic. Bill Gates released a, a TED Talk, uh, I forgot if it was five or 10 years yeah, ago, that yeah. has 30 million views talking about exactly what's happening to us. So, so I can understand why the, quote, man or woman on the street are shocked and surprised that this is happening to us, like we discussed a little while ago. But our political leaders in, who are entrusted with the duty to protect us should not have been surprised. In fact, we're not surprised and therefore rightly are being held to account 
for the hundreds of thousands of deaths. And incidentally, I think we are going to surpass half a million deaths in the United States. I, when I, you and I spoke about this last March, I can't remember what my forecast was. It was hundreds of thousands, I'm pretty sure. Mm. But it's gone up since then. I mean, we, you know, this is going to be the leading killer of Americans this year. And per capita will be for sure the second worst pandemic we've had in this nation for, you know, for over 100 years. Maybe, maybe approach 1918. It depends. Mm. Okay, well, I want to talk about the future. But before we get there, let's talk about the past and present here. So when, when we last spoke, I had you on pretty early in the pandemic, just, you know, just when I began to take it very seriously. And I was not especially prescient, but I was, as I've said several times on the podcast, I was palpably at least a week or two earlier than almost anyone in my sphere, right? So I was the, you know, the dad at school talking to the other parents and getting these looks of astonishment and concern, you know, when I, when I said, you know, we're pulling our girls out of school on Monday, and we looked like hypochondriacs, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was scarcely, you know, a week or 10 days before schools throughout the city and in m- many other places in the country were closed. You know, the, the experience of being a week early was one of living on another planet, right? Like my last trip to the supermarket was one where it was a completely normal trip to the supermarket. And a few days later, I was hearing stories of people literally running down the aisles just and sticking their straight arm out and just scooping 30 bags of pasta into their carts, right? So, you know, I don't give myself much credit for being early, but once I got clear about or thought I was clear about the nature of this problem, I, I initiated some conversations with people like yourself. And at that point, there was a general concern that there was, there was a trade-off between public health and the economy, right? If we take this too seriously, uh, we're going to torpedo the economy, and that's just an intrinsically bad thing. And to say nothing of the fact that when that happens, people die for other reasons. There's a mortality calculus on both sides here. And many people were persuaded, you know, at great effort and obviously incompletely, but many people were persuaded that whatever your concerns about this, you know, maybe not being that much of a, a lethal pandemic and, you know, we're, we're going to do intense harm to the economy, but it makes sense to so-called bend the curve. We need to keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed. And people got on board with that project for about a month or six weeks or so before our lack of full commitment to that became evident. And also, we did successfully bend the curve to the point where, okay, our, our hospitals survived, right? That we, got, we had some fairly scary reports of ICUs filling up, but basically, we kept the ship afloat. And since then, there's just been this total bifurcation in people's thinking about this pandemic. I still know people, and you, know, you can certainly see them in the many others on social media, who think we had a colossal overreaction to this thing. No. The story here is not that we didn't sufficiently prepare. The story is that we panicked and that something like herd immunity is an inevitable terminus to this globally and locally. And you know, this kills people in old age homes, but it doesn't kill all that many people who are not, weren't going to die of something soon anyway. And this, again, this is 
broken along predictably political lines. Yeah, but I, I know you and you're you're going to want to talk about how catastrophically bad our response has been to this and how much we need to learn from this episode. But I don't see ourselves poised to learn those lessons because so much of our society seems to think that this is, if not a hoax, just hoax adjacent, right? <laughs> okay. But first of all, there's so much again to unpack there. I, we need to come back to the herd immunity. We can okay. come back a little yep. bit to the flattening the curve thing. But I do want to also talk to you, and I've make, made some notes here about notions of quantifying risk. And, and maybe that's where I, I'll dip into what you just said. So on the one hand, we, we, the, the country has been confused and the public health messaging has been confused by people thinking, because this, unfortunately for us, this disease is, has a variety of things that can happen to you, from no symptoms to mild symptoms to serious symptoms and long-term disability to death. So it's a very heterogeneous presentation. And in a way that has muddied the public health message, because so many people have such a benign course that it becomes possible to imagine, well, my, this might not be so bad in the way that if it were cholera or smallpox, people wouldn't be saying that. So the intrinsic nature of the pathogen, which is its protean manifestations, ironically, have made it more difficult for us to combat. In addition to its protean nature, the disease is deadly, is 10 times deadlier than the flu, but is not as deadly as the bubonic plague or as the smallpox or cholera, which were called the holy trinity of infections in the Indian subcontinent for centuries. You know, they were so deadly. And that also is ironic because it's, it's, it, if, if this disease had been as deadly as smallpox or Ebola, you better believe Americans would be taking it more seriously. And incidentally, I just want to highlight for your listeners, we are lucky it's not that deadly. There's no ex-ante reason as known to God that this disease is only as bad as it is. It could have been so much worse. And in fact, the pathogen, a SARS-1 that afflicted us in 2003 in a pandemic that petered out for reasons I actually discuss in the book compared to the current pandemic, it had some subtly different biology that made that, that germ peter out. That germ was, by some metrics, 10 times deadlier than the current one. So, so the SARS-CoV-2 kills about 1% of the people that get symptoms from it, kills between 0.3 and 0.5% or 0.3 and 0.6% of the people who become infected with it, and about 0.5 to 1.2% of the people who develop symptoms from it. And it varies a lot by age, but let's just say roughly about one out of 100 people who are symptomatic from this condition will die. And the original SARS probably was 10 times deadlier. And in some ways, the, the lower lethality of this condition have made it harder for us to take seriously. Because even if the disease had been left unfettered in our society to just run loose, and probably in that scenario, maybe 200 million Americans would have been infected. And of those, let's say 100 million would have had symptoms. And of those, maybe a million would have died. Even in that scenario, that's only 1 million out of 330 million Americans. And this has led to some people doing calculations that say, well, don't worry about it. You know, you, you know one out of 300 chance of dying isn't so bad, they say. But that's a completely wrong way to understand and compute risks of of disease in general, let alone infectious diseases. A million deaths is a catastrophe. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an enormous number, an enormous amount of death and destruction in a year in our nation. But 
but our nation will survive. I mean, we are going to see the other side of this. And this is another thing that's so interesting about plagues is that even the bubonic plague, which would sweep through cities and kill often half, sometimes nearly all of the people in a city, ended. I mean, we have accounts, for example, among Native American populations that were annihilated by smallpox. You know, 95% of the people dying within a month, like everyone is dead. Mm. You know, just like a, and we have accounts from medieval Europe of people thinking that this was the second coming, you know, that, that the world was being utterly, completely destroyed. So bad was the toll of death. We thankfully do not have that a situation with this pathogen. But I just want readers, to, uh, listeners to understand that it's dumb luck that that's the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, this could have been a much worse pathogen. It's not. And therefore, the fact that we should take that as a blessing, not as an opportunity to be reckless and then say, oh, well, let's just go about our business and ignore it. There's no reason we need to lose as many Americans as I fear we are going to lose. Before you yeah. continue, let's just secure that that one epiphany here, because I think everyone, regardless of their politics, should be able to agree about this, that there is simply no guarantee that the next pandemic won't be an order of magnitude worse than this, or or even worse than that, right? I mean, we could, there's no guarantee. Yeah, we, it could we, be, but you're absolutely right. But also to be clear, these types of pandemics, part of the problem is there's no one alive that remembers this experience from before. Yeah. You know, the 1918 yeah. pandemic was 100 years ago. And so all the learnings, yes, we should learn our lesson, but it is true that it is unlikely in our lifetime we will have personally to deploy these lessons again. Except when you think about the possibility of bioterrorism, right? I mean, an engin- yes, or there engineered could be. pandemic. Yeah, or it could. I mean, there's stochasticity. I mean, there's already yeah. a, a pretty bad flu uh, influenza A germ that's brewing in China, we know from surveillance from epidemic surveillance procedures, you're right. I mean, it, it, there could be in 10 years or in 20 years or in one year or in 30 years. We don't know. The, the usual interpandemic interval is about 10 to 15 years. And most of those are not so serious, like the 2009 influenza pandemic. The reason people don't remember that one, although it was a pandemic, was that it was very mild. It was like the common cold. You, you got it, but you didn't die. But there absolutely could be another pandemic, and we absolutely should be better prepared and do a better job of it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm mm-hmm. not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying it's you know, probabilistically unlikely we're going to have another SARS-CoV-2 event you know, in the near future. Right. So at a minimum, I think we should agree that we want to be able to respond intelligently and at minimal economic and social cost to a terrifyingly lethal pandemic should such a thing emerge. And on some level, it is just a matter of time, whether it's one year, 10 years, 100 years. We know that nature is continually cooking something up like that for us. And there, you know, there are bird flus that can jump oh, in, yeah. into the human population and have you know, well, 60% lethality. And we know that there are bad actors who will increasingly get their hands on the means to produce engineered viruses and other pathogens. This is something we want to be good at. And during this dress rehearsal, we proved that we're, we're actually bad at responding to this problem. So we, we have to get better at this, whatever you think about COVID. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I also want to pick up another thread of what you were saying, which is there's only so good one can get. I mean, a, a circulating deadly germ is a circulating deadly germ. Yeah. 
it's hard to imagine having the economy escape unscathed. Yeah, even no the doubt. Koreans, even the Koreans or the Chinese or the New Zealanders or the Greeks or you know people who have done reasonably well with the pandemic, their economies are devastated. And it, it's because in order to cope with a germ, you have to cease social interactions, and economy requires social interactions. And so, you know, I think you can test and trace and wear masks, and you can do a lot to maintain a semblance of normality. But you, you, it's hard to argue that a world in which suddenly you've introduced a deadly contagious pathogen through the through implementation of certain responses can be new, neutralized. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's not completely neutralized, but we absolutely can do vastly better uh, than we have been doing. And but it will cost. I mean, there will be a, at at some significant socioeconomic cost. There's, it's unavoidable. So, but just whatever you think about what's happened so far and what's likely to happen in the future, you should agree that whatever lessons there are to be learned about how to respond to a pandemic, we should learn those lessons. Like you can't be oh, skeptical yeah. about that project, even if you think you know, COVID was not at all what the libtards cracked it up to be. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, would, I, I certainly wouldn't argue about that, but this is going back to our argument about science. Yes, yeah. this is what science is about. We should learn. We should observe the world. We should make inferences and we should record them and we should learn from them. Absolutely. And um, yeah, absolutely. But I also want to emphasize, in fact, that's one of the things that I, I discuss in, in, in Apollo Zero. One of the ironies of this pathogen is that the way contagious diseases work, of course, is to exploit our social nature. They, we, we humans live socially for a very specific set of reasons. And this was the topic of a previous conversation you and I had, and of course, a previous book as well, you know, a blueprint, the evolutionary origins of a good society. But anyway, we, we humans live socially for very particular sets of reasons. And just to summarize a couple of the key ones, one is to cooperate. I mean, this seems obvious, but we band together to be able to achieve things we weren't able to achieve on our own, and also to be able to learn from each other. So most animals can learn independently. You know, a little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the, to the, uh, to the light, it will find food there. That's independent learning. But we, we can observe each other and learn. So, so you put your hand in the fire, and you learn that it burns. That's independent learning. Or I can, and that you learn something, but at great cost. Or I can watch you put your hand in the fire, and uh, I gain almost as much learning, you know, fire burns, but pay none of the cost. You know, my hand is unburnt. Or, or you eat a red berry in the woods and die, and I watch you eat a red berry, and I don't eat it, so I survive. That kind of social imitation, that kind of social learning is incredibly efficient, and this is one of the reasons we evolved to live together. But we also do something else, which is we teach each other things. We we accumulate knowledge and we transmit it across space and time. Now, so, so one of the arguments that I like to make about human social life is that the spread of germs is the price we pay for the spread of ideas. Hmm. So I come near you to learn from you, but in so doing, I set myself up for contagions of infections. And so therefore, the, 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 the pathogen is exploiting our social networks, our social interactions, our evolved desire to touch and hug each other, our, our desire to band together in order to learn from each other, and the virus moves along these social pathways, killing us. And so how are we going to respond? Well, we respond by exploiting our capacity for cooperation and learning. We work together to live apart. We have learned from the past. We're not the first humans to confront a pandemic. We inherited a playbook about what to do. That's a kind of teaching. 
So one of the deep ironies is that the, the very same things that the pathogen is exploiting to kill us are the tools we need to use to best it. And, and this is one of the reasons I'm so particularly invested, as are you, in us learning from this experience. There's no reason future generations of us should do the job as poorly as we have done it hmm. right now. And in fact, I should also say, we don't even need to look to future generations. There's still time for us to learn now and do a better job in the coming year or so. And we can discuss what I think is going to happen next. But we still have about a year and a half, in my view, of serious Im immediate impact of the pathogen, where we're going to need to wear masks and and, uh, and, 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 and physically distance and do a bunch of other self-protective interventions. But eventually, the tide will turn. But nevertheless, in the interval, we, there are things we need to do. Well, so let's talk about that. But uh, you know, the, the reasonableness of any intervention turns on some appraisal of how bad this disease is. And the core of, of any claim about its badness rests on how many people are actually dying from it. And this is where I've encountered the one source of skepticism, which seems to me to be harder than, than most to dismiss. And this has been trumpeted by many prominent people. I've had to encounter this both publicly and privately. But it's this concern that the mortality statistics of COVID are being amplified because doctors have been incentivized to over-report COVID deaths. We rely on doctors to fill out death certificates, and the CDC guidance for reporting a COVID death does not require a positive test for COVID. And, and this seems to be a concession to how inept we were at testing and, and, pro and still are at testing. So rather, doctors simply need to deem it you know, probable that COVID was part of the picture in accounting for this death. So they, they presume a COVID death in many cases based on a constellation of symptoms, whatever else may be wrong with the patient. And, and of course, you know, there are many respiratory conditions that people die from. You know, there's COPD and asthma and pneumonia, and, and they also kill some hundreds of thousands of Americans each year, right? So these are not tiny sources of mortality. It's easy to imagine that if doctors are simply admonished to Check no, the this is, COVID box whenever it, it's plausible no, against this no. background of other respiratory diseases. That could inflate the number of COVID deaths. And just to add one final wrinkle here, which is perhaps the most troubling, this was happening in the context where there was actually, and probably still is, a financial incentive to presume COVID's involvement because you know, hospitals, many hospitals were on the verge of bankruptcy because all elective procedures were being canceled because nobody wanted to get COVID. And they were given money, you know, I think HHS allocated something like $50 billion for hospitals that were, were having to deal with a surge of COVID cases. So there, there was an, a financial incentive to say, oh, yeah, this is yet another COVID case that's hit our ICU. No, I don't. I, I don't think any of this makes any sense on any level, and we can discuss this. Okay. I, I'm not, I don't know about the details of how HHS reimbursed for the care. I do know that, ironically, our healthcare system was organized in such a fashion that in our reimbursement system that precisely when we needed it most, hospitals started losing money. As you alluded to, you make much more money with elective surgeries than you do with caring for acutely ill people during a time of an epidemic, which is nuts. That is to mm -hmm. say, 
this is when our hospitals were most needed, when money should have flowed to them liberally. And the idea that many hospitals, I, I understand it, quite a few rural hospitals uh, almost went out of business. I, I read some news reports about Maine. I'm not 100% sure about this. Yes, the government tried to compensate hospitals to make up for the losses, but my understanding is it wasn't enough. In any case, that is, is nuts that, that hospitals providing care in a time of a pandemic, that this would be a loss leader, you know, or that they would mm. lose money is, is crazy that that would happen. Now, on the issue of are we correctly finding it, there's so much evidence that, that, that that's not the case that I don't even know where to begin. That it's not the case that we're overreporting COVID deaths. No, no, absolutely not. And uh, the evidence for that comes from multiple sources, one of which is, of course, the consistency in the death rate in places around the world with very different systems of recording deaths, of detecting deaths, of very different financial incentives. We even have situations in which, you know, for example, we could look at the, we had those famous cases early on in the epidemic of the Diamond Princess, you know, cruise ships where no one could come or leave. We knew exactly who got sick and we could count which of them died. So, you know, we could, we could assess the lethality of the pathogen. And we now have a focus studies around the world of um, sort of case studies of, you know, Manaus in Brazil or, or villages in Lombardy or in Austria, where early on the epidemic just, you know, swept through the community and we can enumerate who died during the time of the epidemic. Furthermore, there's another technique that was introduced in the middle of the 19th century by William Farr, one of the founders of the field of demography that ironically is still in use today, which is the notion of counting excess deaths. Hmm. And, and scientists use this even now when we're trying to look at historical epidemics. Let's say you want to figure out how bad was the bubonic plague or how bad was the, the Spanish flu in 1918. You don't have the capacity to test people. The death records at the time were very incompetent or incomplete. How can you tell? Well, Farr proposed that we can assess the impact of an epidemic by, by counting up how many people are dying of all causes during the time of the plague and comparing that to the number of people expected to die if the plague had not been there, for instance, in the prior five years in this time window. And when you do an exercise like that, that's how we get estimates that the current count of people confirmed COVID deaths that we have in the United States which is something like 230,000, that it's probably an underestimate by a factor of about 25%. Probably 300,000 Americans have already died of COVID. In other words, what we're doing, if anything, is undercounting the deaths. Hmm. We know simply by looking at who's dying. Now, in fairness, some of those deaths are due to COVID, but not necessarily due to COVID infection. For example, if COVID causes you to become depressed and suicide goes up, that's swept up in the COVID deaths, you know, using the excess death metric. But in any case, the, the point is, is that there's, there's really, there's although, no reason although to- there are obvious reasons why there will be fewer than normal deaths based on all the behavioral changes due to the, any kind of lockdown during a pandemic. There had to be a period where there were fewer motor vehicle deaths and- Yes. You know. Yeah. So the, the excess death metric captures all of that, both the benefits of COVID and the extra costs of COVID. Exactly right. So let's say there were more suicides, but fewer motor vehicle accidents. Some people have argued that there was less, less overtreatment of patients. You know, iatrogenesis, which mm -hmm. is medical doctor-caused injuries, they were likely lower. In other words, in the past, if you had a mild heart attack, probably the right thing to do was not to, not to have a doctor do anything. But the doctors would do things to you, actually increasing your risk of death 
But under COVID, people with mild heart attacks maybe stayed at home or didn't come to medical attention. And ironically, then they, f- they failed to die, which they otherwise would have. So maybe COVID saved their lives. But the point of doing this calculation is that it combines all of that stuff together and says, okay, here are the total direct and indirect risks and benefits of COVID. And that number is higher even than the number of known COVID deaths as reported by doctors along the lines that you described. Hmm. I would also add that if, in fact, deaths that should have been ascribed to other respiratory illnesses like COPD or asthma or pneumonia were being inaccurately coded as COVID deaths, we'd be able to see the rates of COPD and asthma and pneumonia-related deaths go down. Yes. Because we, we know what to expect from those yes. each year. Yes, that's right. And in fact, reassigning COVID deaths, COP deaths to be COVID deaths wouldn't affect the excess death calculation. So right. this excess death calculation is a kind of more objective way of looking at the impact of an epidemic, which has been used for you know, 150 years for real-time epidemic monitoring and for assessment of historical epidemics when we didn't have good death records, yeah. cause of death, rather, information. So no, I don't think that there is some kind of conspiracy or some kind of a mis- misassessment of, the, of, of deaths in, in our society. And, and, and picking up a little bit on what we said earlier, see, one of the ironies is that even if a million Americans die, there are probably only going to be about, let's say, 10 people for each of those people who knew them personally. So that'll be like 10 million Americans will know someone who died of COVID and probably 100 million Americans. So like 100, you know, I'm sorry, 10 Americans per decedent who Mm. were intimately connected to this decedent. And now let's say are like really upset and worried about COVID. And then even if a million Americans die, there will be, let's say, 100 people who, who know of that person. So there'll only be 100 million Americans who know of someone who died personally. This is a very crude approximation for many reasons that I don't go into right now. But the point is, even after the epidemic has swept through our society, the majority of Americans will neither have died of it nor know someone who has died of it. And so this is one of the reasons that it's difficult to why President Trump can get up there and say, oh, nothing bad is happening. Because in the everyday experience of most people, in fact, they're not going to come up close and personal with this pathogen. Again, for the reasons we discussed earlier about the, the fundamental nature of this pathogen, but that doesn't make it less of a threat. Mm. It doesn't. It, and, and furthermore, one more thing, we're, we've been talking about death, but it's very important to highlight the fact that we're also going to see an epidemic of disability in our society that's going to persist for a long time. So, so most people who get the disease, in, including, for example, the president, survive the condition. But 5% of them, we don't know the precise number yet, and we won't for a while, but probably about 5% will have serious long-term disability. They'll have pulmonary fibrosis. They'll have renal insufficiency. They'll have cardiac abnormalities. They might have neurological abnormalities. So Mm. we're going to have many millions of Americans who have post-COVID syndrome. And and this also doesn't include all the children whose parents will be sick or disabled you know, all the, 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 the adverse health events, the adverse events on, on, young, on children whose, whose parents have lost their jobs, whose parents are dead or sick. You know, there's just all of this sadness and badness that come in a time of plague. And, and there's, unfortunately, there's no way to escape it. I mean, it is, it is, it is just an ineluctable truth about, about plague that it, that it is ruinous, that this is what it does to societies. It, 
It, it is one of the four horsemen, <laughs> you know, for precisely this reason. Mm. It seems reasonable to worry even about mild, so-called mild cases here. I think there was one study that showed that there was some crazy percentage, it was something like 78% of, of mild cases had detectable heart irregularities as a result. So it, was, it just seems fairly clear that we don't know enough about what COVID is doing to us. And, and in, in some sense, it's not even principally a, a respiratory illness. I mean, it's a vascular illness. And also, as you say, you know, a, a neurological one. We certainly know about coronaviruses. I mean, we, we have some evidence. Uh, there are four coronaviruses that cause the common cold. In my book, I, I speculate in keeping with speculations by others that the 1890 pandemic was actually not influenza, but may have been a coronavirus. And over time, that virus has now become the virus that one of the four coronaviruses that causes the common cold. It's become more benign. We've evolved as well some natural immunity to it. We get the disease as children. And then when we're re-exposed as adults, we have a minor illness. There's a whole set of human diseases that behave this way. So it's possible that this current coronavirus, you know, in, in 100 years or perhaps sooner will I should just emphasize the virus is not going to disappear. I mean, it's going to keep circulating among us forever. The only issue is how will we cope with it? And hopefully we'll have a vaccine. And we haven't talked about that yet, and we can. But yeah. one, one thing that is likely to happen is that the, the virus will, over a period of years, become more, will evolve to be less lethal. And uh, probably we will be exposed to it as children when we, um, as we already know, are relatively less adversely affected by it as is also typical of other coronaviruses, for example, the 2003 coronavirus. This is all discussed in my book, by the way. And then when we are re-exposed as adults, may have a more benign course. It, it's a little bit like chickenpox. You know, if you get chickenpox as a kid, you get a pretty benign condition. If you've never had chickenpox and you get it for the first time as an adult, you can die from it. So that's why exposure to chickenpox early on might be a rational strategy. So there are lots of diseases like that, and it's possible that this will join, you know, that that will be the pattern for this particular condition as well. But as you said, it's early to speculate. And furthermore, as you also said, and as I was saying, it's a serious condition. It, is, it doesn't just cause us death. It, it causes us disability. And, and the disease is having, as we were discussing earlier, an ecological release. You know, it is, it is just spreading, you know, it is doing what living things do. It is just, you know, spreading across all of humanity. And, and how is it spreading? I mean, early on, many of us began speaking about the R-naught of this and mm. just how, how contagious is this and how will that respond to the things we, we do to modify our behavior. But now we're, we're speaking more in terms of super spreaders and super spreader events. How do you yeah. think about the spread of this now? Well, we know now much more than we did when you and I last spoke in March. I mean, the, R, the intrinsic transmissibility of the virus, the so-called R-naught, the number of new, the reproduction number, the number of new cases that arise in a non-immune population that is interacting normally is between 2.5 and 3.5. So for each case of SARS-CoV-2, uh, each infection, on average, between two and a half and three and a half new cases will arise in, if people aren't immune and they're interacting normally. That's the fundamental transmissibility of the virus. In my book, I use an R-naught of three as a benchmark. Now, that is a pretty high R-naught. Like seasonal flu has an R-naught of between 
0.9 and 1.6 or so. So if you have an R0 of one, that means that for each case, you create one new case. So, the, so you don't really get an epidemic. There's no growth in cases. Mm. If it's below one, then of course, the case count declines with time because each case on average cannot reproduce itself. Diseases like chickenpox, I think, have an R0 of about six or something. Measles, which is the most contagious disease known, has an R0 of 18 or something. And, and this, incidentally, this also relates to the pr- issue of herd immunity, which we haven't discussed, and also the fraction of people that will need to be vaccinated in order for the population to be immune. So the, the more transmissible the disease, the higher percentage of people have to have acquired immunity for herd immunity to kick in naturally, or the higher the fraction of people have to be vaccinated in order to protect the unvaccinated people in the population. So the higher the transmissibility of the disease, the higher those percentages need to be. So for so this disease, we now know about how transmissible it is, but there's another number, which is not the r naught, is the so-called R sub E, the effective reproductive reproduction number or effective reproductive rate, which is what we manipulate when we engage in physical distancing and when we try to flatten the curve. So when we, when we change our behavior, we modify the transmissibility of the virus. And you can measure and monitor the RE, and you can see, oh my goodness, everyone is staying at home. Each new case of the virus is creating less than one new case. We brought the RE below one, and that's exactly what we're trying to do, and we have uh, brought it down. And just to pick up a little abandoned thread from our conversation earlier, the, the whole reason we rightly social, physical distanced and tried to flatten the curve nine months ago was not like what the Chinese achieved by locking down their country or what we achieved by engaging in the kind of physical distancing that we did was not the eradication of the pathogen. That pathogen, we can't eradicate it. It's, it's loose now. What we achieved instead was a postponement of its impact and may, as a result, also have saved some lives. Let me explain why. When the disease first struck, we had no medicines to treat it. By engaging in the sort of lockdown behavior that we engaged in, in the closing the schools and the masking and everything else, we, we gave our hospitals and our doctors and our scientists and our supply chains time to work so we could make more PPE, which would then ultimately save lives if people had PPE, or so our doctors could do research to discover how to treat the condition. And over the summer, we had the first drug that was shown to actually lower mortality from coronavirus, which is a very cheap and old drug, a drug called dexamethasone. We had a landmark randomized controlled trial of a very large number of people, the so-called recovery trial out of England, that showed that dexamethasone reduced mortality by 20%. That's huge. Mm. So you would much rather get COVID now than COVID in March, because now we have a drug that we can give you that reduces your risk of dying if you're seriously ill with it by 20%, which is amazing. Plus, doctors have learned all kinds of other stuff, like to put you on your stomach when you're in the hospital instead of on your back, for example. In addition, there's some other drugs like remdesivir, which none of the trials have so far shown that it has an impact on mortality. We had a very depressing trial that was just released a couple of weeks ago with a large number of people which failed to show an impact on mortality. But nevertheless, that drug might also be helpful. So we will continue to innovate on drugs. There will not be a drug that, is, that cures coronavirus. It's very difficult to find, to stop viral infections, to cure viral infections, unlike bacterial infections. But we will likely have drugs that are more and more effective that are discovered over time. And this is why we had to flatten the curve. And of course, we bought ourselves time to invent a vaccine. And I do believe we will see a vaccine 
in 2021. There are over 130 efforts afoot of over 10 different approaches to vaccine development around the world. I think sometime in 2021, we may discover an, a vaccine. How safe it is or how effective it is, it's hard to predict. I think in our rush to develop these vaccines, we may find a safety profile that's not so great, which may dampen enthusiasm for the vaccine. Mm. But, the, but the problem is, even if we invent a vaccine, we then have to manufacture it, which is not trivial, distribute it, which is not trivial. We need to maintain something known as a cold chain. From the moment of manufacture to the moment of injection, the vaccine always has to be in a refrigerator. That's not a trivial thing. And finally, and most importantly, we need to have acceptance. People have to want the vaccine and have to take it up in large numbers. So I think that's going to take us into 2022. That's, so mm. from my desk, what I see is that either we will invent a vaccine and, uh, and accomplish everything else I just described, which will take time and take us into 2022, or meanwhile, the virus is still spreading, which means we need another couple of annual cycles of this pathogen, which is what respiratory pathogens do. Only about 10% of Americans have been infected. And according to some network science-informed estimates, I think about 40 or 45% need to be infected before we have herd immunity, which I think then we will reach by 2022, just because we're so incompetent right now and the germ is just spreading. So one way or the other, from my desk, we're going to be physical distancing. We're going to have periodic school closures. We're going to be wearing masks. We're not going to be shaking hands. We're going to have a suppression of our economy until 2022. And then we're going to, the immediate pandemic period will end, but it's not going to be an immediate return to life as normal. Because if you look at what's happened with the centuries of epidemics, people are going to be shell-shocked. Our economy will have been adversely affected. People's psychology, you know, people aren't going to suddenly want to go to airports or suddenly start shaking hands again or, or going to crowded bars and restaurants or nightclubs. It'll take time for people to re recover from that. So I, I put the intermediate pandemic period until 2024. And then I think in 2024, we're going to have the post-pandemic period where I think we will return to normal with some persistent changes. I think people will be working from home more. I think there'll be a number of other changes in our society. I think gender relations are going to change in certain ways as a result of the pandemic. We can discuss that. And, and, and then we're going to have in 2024, a kind of uh, roaring 20s. You know, there'll be an efflorescence. People will pack political protests and, and sports events and restaurants and nightclubs and religion, which is rising, by the way, right now, will go back down again. You know, during times of plague, people find God. There'll be a kind of licentiousness, a sexual licentiousness and a kind of intemperance and joie de vivre. And this is typically what has happened with past epidemics. So these these aren't hard landmarks, you know, 2022 and 2024, but approximately that is what I think is going to happen. It's October, and uh, already you're so full of Christmas cheer, Nicholas. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the good news is... No, 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 we have to traverse some of this ground again. I, I thought I, we were going to bring this conversation in around the hour mark. But I, I see no hope of that. So uh, first of all, let me just check your time, Nicholas. You got another half hour in you? Yeah, no, I'm available. Okay, all right. okay so uh, yeah, I want to talk about the future. The prospect that nothing like normal life returns until 2024 is, is not something that, <laughs> that, that I have foreseen. So let's, let's talk about the, the near time horizon here. Let's talk about the next six months. We have a president who is promising a vaccine any week now. 
and you know, it's, it's fairly sure that uh, that can be distributed by the military practically overnight. He seems to think that offering a vaccine may may even constitute a kind of October surprise leading to his reelection. Also, there's this is another place where politics is intruding into the scientific process that could give us a rational concern about the safety of any vaccine. I mean, if in fact yes. a vaccine is produced in yes. in December, right, you know, faster than any vaccine in, in history, yes. it seems rational not to be the first person in line to take it. And that that is a disaster given what we already know to be the level of, of paranoid unwillingness to get vaccinated for anything at any time, even for vaccines whose effectiveness and safety have been established for decades. Yeah, we have I this mean, environment of misinformation around vaccines, and now there's a rational concern that a vaccine may be rushed to market prematurely for patently political reasons. Yeah, I mean, and this is, we talked a little bit about this earlier, we alluded to it, that one of the key pillars of public health and dealing with a public health catastrophe is, in fact, public health communication. And the people communicating information have to, from the beginning, cultivate credibility so that they are believed. When they ask of the public inconvenient things like closing their schools, they have to be trustworthy, which means from the very beginning, they need to be honest. They need to be honest about what they don't know. If they change their, they need to offer their reasons. They need to, if, they're, if they change their thinking, they need to explain to the public, here's why I've changed my thinkings. Yes, I know I told you not to wear masks before. This is the reason I said that. But now I have learned this, so this is the reason I'm changing my opinion and, and my advice and so on. And this credibility, maintaining it is crucial because just as you've said, mobilizing the public to take vaccines is going to be crucially important. And people are going to be worried and suspicious given the rush, not only just given the rush, but given the, the way in which it's been explicitly politicized, so, which is a completely wrong way to do it. So, and in fact, it's possible, you know, these trials are being done with order you know, with tens of thousands of people, let's say order 30,000 people, even if the drug is shown to be effective in, with that sample size and safe in that sample size, when we start giving it to millions of people, we're going to get a sense of the real safety of the, of the drug. And most vaccines that we offer in our society are exceedingly safe. That is, say, fewer than one in 10 million people, let's say, will die as a result of the vaccine. And that's a no-brainer from a public health point of view. You know, you're saving thousands or tens of or hundreds of thousands of lives in exchange for one death. But this vaccine, let's say it has a, a fatality rate of one in 100,000 to one in a million, it still might make sense from a public health point of view, although it might not, but from a public relations point of view, it could be a disaster. Because if you vaccinate a million people and 10 of them die you know, in the next three weeks, th this will be breathlessly reported by the press and interest in taking the vaccine will decline. This also goes back to the fact that COVID is serious, but not like smallpox hmm. or bubonic plague, you know, where if it was bubonic plague, we would all take huge risks to get a vaccine, you know, in medieval bubonic plague. Not now. Now you can just treat it with tetracycline. Incidentally, untreated, it's still deadly bubonic plague, and it still exists on our planet. Hmm. So yes, I think that's exactly right. I think public health communication and credibility around is crucial, and especially as it relates to the potential rollout of a, of a vaccine. I, I do think, as I said, we will likely have a successful vaccine trial probably in the first quarter of 2021. And 
But then there will be this additional barriers to getting the vaccine, uh, you know, manufactured, distributed, and adopted. And it'll it'll go to first responders, I would imagine, soonest, right? Once once we have yes, the vaccine in hand. Yeah, and health personnel. I think that's a very mm-hmm. ethically defensible and very rational procedure. So it'll go first to them, and then there'll be some probably national panel which will decide the sequence. You know, when it's still scarce, but eventually there'll be enough for everyone. And, you know, you'll, everyone will be vaccinated, you know, like in a CVS or in a Walgreens or something, mm. you know, ultimately. And if you had to bet when's the, the first month that is likely to be happening, or, or it's, it is a matter of the widespread availability of vaccine. Um, I would say vaccine. L- late in 2021, and that's why I say 2022 is a turning point, is the mm. first landmark that we were discussing, because even if it's available, we're not going to get, you know, whatever we need, 150, 200 million Americans, at least, injected with the vaccine, you know, by the end of 2021. I, I just see that as very, very unlikely, given all the sequence of steps that has to happen. And what's the expectation for the character of the vaccine? Is this a vaccine analogous to measles that you, you get once or you get once plus a, a, an occasional booster? Or is this like the flu vaccine where we don't, you get it we every don't year if- and it sort of works? We don't know for sure. Well, the flu is a very complicated and different situation. Why the flu vaccine you have to get every year and why it's incomplete even when you get it. You know, it only covers 30 or 40% of the strains that are out there when you get the flu vaccine, unlike the measles vaccine, let's say. So we don't know the answer to that. Is a general rule, there are some general rules of thumb. So certain vaccines that are built on live attenuated strains of the virus where you take the actual virus, which is a complex, bio, complex biological entity with many different proteins on its surface, and you inactivate it in some way so it can't give, make you sick, but it still elicits an immune response, those types of vaccines tend to offer much longer immunity. So for example, this is, and the Chinese are using this technique, incidentally, as one of their primary approaches to developing vaccines. Such a vaccine might confer long-term immunity. Most of the rapid approaches, including the mRNA vaccine and some of the other subunit, protein subunit vaccines and so on, are unlikely to confer that kind of long immunity. We don't know the answer for sure. We also don't know how strong the immunity will be, but I suspect those will require booster shots or periodic re-inoculation. So a year from now is, is the first moment where, when you would reasonably expect to be vaccinated. So Well, no, no, no. I mean, if the others will but the first moment when we'd say the average American right. is likely to have easy access to a safe vaccine. Yeah, would be about a year from now I would if I had to guess. So so you're it sounds like you're expecting at least a year of of what we've experienced over the last 8 months or so. A significant yeah, just, disruption I, of normal I, I, life. Sam, I'm, Sam, I'm detecting all this surprise and shock in your voice, and honestly, it's surprising me. No, no, I mean, why? No, no, why I just, I just so- want to. I, I'm well. Perhaps I'm. Is that really so surprising? No, what I'm it, saying? no, it's not. I mean, that, that's what I've been expecting this whole yeah. time. I mean, I, you know, I have been someone. I was expecting it to last at least a year. Uh huh. Once I got religion on this topic, uh-huh. um, a, a year being the soonest at which things would begin to change for yeah. the better, and so that that gives me, you know, four more months of. Uh-huh. Of uh, runway for my pessimism, okay. But yeah, no, you know, if I had to guess now, I yeah, I would agree that it's not until we get a vaccine that I see a, a significant mechanism for change. And I, I share your 
your time horizon here. So, so I'm expecting a proper mess for at least another year. Yes. And also for, I mean, we haven't talked about this, but it seems to me that the, the economic impact is only starting to be felt yes. you know, for real, right? I mean, given our, yes, unless, we, unless we do something you know, fairly heroic as a stimulus here, and all, all of that is very vulnerable to our politics and what happens in the election. And so, well, there's only so much we can borrow from the future to spend now. I mean, there, you know, there's a Larry Summers and David Cutler just released the former Treasury Secretary, and both of them are colleagues of mine. David is an economist. They both just released a paper a week or so ago calling this the $16 trillion virus, hmm. that about $8 trillion of it is economic damage. And these are vast sums. I mean, just comprehensively large sums. And $8 trillion is the health consequences, the death and the disability. They use as their benchmark mortality 625,000 Americans dead, by the way. And um, so, so the virus, you know, it's very hard to imagine where we can find $16 trillion, uh, even if we borrow from the future. So I, I do think the economics, and, and this is not my special expertise to be clear, but, but, you know, we have 30 million Americans out of work. Jobless claims are still very large, just at historically very large levels, uh, weekly, uh, monthly jobless claims. And, um, and, uh, the stock market is doing well for reasons that are very odd, in my view, but comprehensible from one point of view. But the stock market is not the economy. And I think the economy is suffering. I think people have been relying on reserves. They've been, uh, not everyone has lost their job, which is good and true. And those of us that have jobs should be very grateful that we have them because many of our neighbors do not and are suffering. I think the, uh, but we're going to see rising levels of poverty and and I think this recession we're in is not going to snap back, and it's not going to end soon. I can't see why. We still have a deadly germ mm. on the loose. People aren't going to resume normal economic activity. Okay, so let's swallow this bitter pill that at least another year of nothing like normal and perhaps a even increased economic pain against a background of mm -hmm. where the epidemiological picture hasn't changed so we can't really respond to the the economic pain in any way other than than we we are mm -hmm. at the moment right so once we get a vaccine and we get you know appropriate messaging around it and you know it's, let's just say we get very very lucky it's demonstrably safe and effective and people by the tens and even hundreds of millions line up and get it mm -hmm. do you just picture a, a, an utterly hard reset of our old social norms, and we're back to hugging and shaking hands, and, and something like the Roaring Twenties dawns for us? Or do you view a, ch a fundamental change in how we just view public health and, and what's prudent in social space? No, I think we have a couple of years of shell shock. You know, it's like saying when the bombing of, when the World War II ended and the bombing of Germany ended, Hmm. Did the Germans suddenly return to business as usual? No, their economy was devastated. Their cities were devastated. Just because the, the, the Americans weren't you know, doing bombing runs anymore didn't mean that suddenly everyone just returned to normal. Hmm. We are, you know, the economy, shores will, stores will have been shuttered. Economic uh, supply chains will have been disrupted because of this. Normal business, you know, people are, are going to be gun shy. You know, maybe many millions of people will not yet have been vaccinated and they're going to be still waiting either for a vaccine or waiting to see what happens. And uh, they're going to not be circulating as much. Even if restaurants reopen for business, it's not like suddenly everyone's going to throng to them. No, we're going to have 
social, psychological, and economic uh, reverberations, that's, in my view, that last us. And after the Im- immediate biological threat is over, we're going to have these uh, social, psychological, and economic uh, consequences that will last for some period of time. And then only, I am estimating, roughly in 2024, will we have sort of the Roaring Twenties analogy, where I think there will be a lot of pent-up interest in social interactions. People will start spending money again and and interacting socially on a big scale. I think we're going to see some changes in the arts. And even then, in the post-pandemic world, in my view, there are going to be some persistent changes. So I think, you know, working from home is going to become extremely normal. People are going to say, wait, I can work from home. And this is, businesses are going to say, why do I need to pay all this money for office space if I can give my, my workers a chance to work from home? And they're providing me basically office space. This is more efe- efficient. Or business travel. You know, who is going to ever get on a plane again and travel across the country for a two-hour business meeting? Mm. They will, of course, and there's nothing like business face-to-face, but many meetings will be seen as unnecessary. Let's quickly, you know, let's just do our Zoom meeting instead of, you know, 24 hours of traveling. And, and so, so that's going to have effects on the, on the airline industry and the travel industry and so forth, which are going to continue. And even the gender role thing, I think we alluded to that earlier. I think, you know, it's very interesting when you, it's still unclear, but typically still in the average American family, on average, the man earns more money than the woman. That's not always the case. Sometimes women earn more money than men, of course, in a couple. Of course, there are also homosexual couples where they don't have different genders. But for the sake of argument, let's just stick with heterosexual couple. The typical heterosexual couple, the man on average earns more money than the woman. And on average as well, a typical woman is more likely to be interested in, in spending time with the children, on average. And it's not always the case. So many American couples, when faced with the pandemic and the economic collapse, are quite rationally, from the point of view of their household, saying, okay, schools are closed. Mom wasn't making as much money as dad anyway. Probably mom should quit her job and stay home with the kids, and dad should keep trying to earn a living to support the family. This is a decision that's been made and is being made by many millions of couples and Americans. Again, many other types of families, there's single families, there's gay families, there's single parent families, there's people where they don't have the same economics. I get it. And of course, those people are making other choices. But the point is, each couple, each family is making choices that are, from its point of view, the most rational. And early indicators suggest that when you add add up all those individual choices that are being made, the labor market gains that women have experienced in the last 10 or 20 years are beginning to be erased. So one of the ironic things we may find in the post-pandemic period is a kind of return to more gender stereotypic uh, labor market patterns. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. And I'm also not going to say it's going to last forever. For instance, in the short term, I think that cities are going to lose some of their appeal, and I think globalization is going to lose some of its appeal. So I think both of those long-term trends for the last 50 years, urbanization and globalization, are going to be arrested by Hmm. a global respiratory pandemic. But the social, political, and economic motivations for that are not going to go away. So I think in four or five years, we're going to see, so, so in, in the intermediate term, we're going to see a reversal of those things. I think we're going to see a net exodus from cities. But I don't think cities are going to lose their long-term appeal. I think you know eventually, four or five years from now, cities will boom again and be seen. Because cities, the appeal of cities has been developing for centuries. There are, cities are obviously very appealing places to live. People vote with their feet. We know this because of how the Earth's population is redistributing to be in cities. And the same with globalization. While we, while we may see some um, 
repatriation of supply chains. You know, Apple is already beginning to talk about making chips again domestically. And I think I read that in and other companies, you know, pharmaceutical companies may say, hey, it's not a good idea to be dependent on China and India for our drugs because, uh, you know, when there's a global pandemic, we need to be able to make them at home, et cetera. But I think, again, eventually the, the benefits of globalization will be seen as so compelling that those trends will then reverse again. But the point is, even in 2024, we're going to see echoes of what we've been through. Some will be longstanding. One of the favorite examples that's offered, and then I'll, I'll shut up is you know, prior to the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, people were still using spittoons. A charming habit. Yes. Yeah, let's and, but, let's but, resurrect but, that. Yes. But, and, but there, there were all these anti-spitting initiatives in, in New York and other major cities, actually driven in part by the uh, tuberculosis epidemics, but they were really accentuated by the 1918 respiratory pandemic and spittoons disappeared. I mean, no one asked in 1950, why aren't there spittoons in the restaurant? Hmm. You know, those... Those, that was a long-term change that disappeared with the uh, epidemic. And I think there are going to be things like that, you know, that 30 or 40 years from now will not be features of our society that will have been eliminated as a result of the 2019 coronavirus pandemic that people won't even think to ask about. Mm. I want to talk about just a few specifics here just to get a sense of your picture of the future. So if I told you that I... Um had a brilliant idea to start a, uh, a yearly conference where we would all get together with a thousand or two thousand of our closest friends. When is the first month where you think that conference is likely to happen without, where we would not seem crazy to ourselves or to people better informed than, than ourselves to launch a new s- conference in the first place? I would say sometime in 2022. And even then, many people might still be wearing masks and stuff like that. But, mm. but some, in that year, I would estimate. And what do you think about the, the future of the university? Obviously, many universities are, are, are going to get just smashed I'm very disillusioned by I'm very disillusioned by what many universities are doing, Sam, for other reasons. But, but, but yeah, you're talking well, about COVID specifically for, now. Perhaps we can touch on that. But yeah, so what, what's, what's happening? I mean, what, I mean, you're at Yale, so that gives you a yeah. privileged view of some of the most privileged people. What's your sense of the future of the university? Well, there are lots of macro trends that are affecting universities. I I don't think the elite universities, the rich ones or the ones with great brand recognition are going to suffer or change very much. But I do think many small colleges will go out of business and are beginning to go out of business. They can't survive, you know, two years without tuition. I also think that many major universities will start offering online analogs to their courses, which they'll be able to do at low marginal cost. And those will be seen as potentially as appealing alternatives for many other universities. So, for example, if you could get an online degree from Yale or an in-person degree from your nearby less well-known college, even though that less and while you live at home, even though that less well-known college would have offered you the residential experience you might want, you might nevertheless say, you know what, I'm going to take this equally expensive or cheaper but higher brand value online experience. Uh, so I, you know, I think there are going to be changes like that. I think there are other are, changes. Are you, are you be- teaching online now or not? Uh, not this semester, but next. I did last semester, mm. uh, you know, during the spring of 2020, and I will, I teach in the spring. So I'll be teaching okay. again in the spring of 2021. And yes, the Yale is planning on being online then. Okay, so can you imagine, based on your experience so far teaching, can you imagine a fully online degree 
granting process at, at Yale that would be satisfactory in the end? And, and if you can imagine such a thing, when do you think we'll, we'll actually be so good at Zoom or some other platform that it'll be possible? Well, I think the technology's there already. I just don't know. I'm not an expert in this and, you know, on the, on the economics and of higher education, what people are willing to pay for and why. Keep in mind that for large numbers of Yale students, they go to Yale for free anyway. So, you know, the, these rich institutions are, have endowments that basically it's only the upper middle class that pay. Mm. Uh, lower middle class, working class people, if you get into Yale, you don't have to pay. Of course, the billionaires, it's not a hardship for them anyway. The people that are really squeezed are the, are the middle class, upper middle class people who, you know, are expected to pay something. But even they often get remission. And, and frankly, even the rack rate, even the ostensible price of the education is, is uh, lower than the actual price because of the endowments and on and on. So the economics are very complicated. But I wouldn't be surprised if many institutions, and maybe the most elite ones won't do this. Maybe it'll be just a tier right below them that will do this. But many institutions, if they're not already thinking about it, I'd be surprised which is how can we take everything we're doing and create a new product that's you know on, online universe online smith university and online smith university is a fifth of the price of real smith university and you can do it from anywhere and uh, the marginal production costs will be low for smith university because they're already doing this and they already have built studios and and students are used to taking their classes from home and incidentally for many people, for disabled students, for shy students, for poor students, there'll be many, many people who, for other reasons, will find this quite appealing to to, to online education hmm. and actually get a degree. So, and let's also remember, incidentally, that the American tradition, frankly, only about 30% of Americans or something go to college anyway. So let's not forget that the vast majority of Americans don't even go to college. But even the ones that go to college, only a fraction of them, and, and, and I'm talking about four-year colleges, because community colleges is another whole fascinating and important feature of our society, a very pro-democratic, actually wonderful feature of our society, community colleges are. But in Europe, residential colleges are extremely uncommon. I mean, many people live at home when they go to college or with their parents, or they um, live in the, in the city. I mean, they you know, rent apartments. There's no sense of a, a college campus where people mm. reside. They just go there for their classes. This has not been the sort of gold standard in the United States, where our gold standard has been is you bring the students together into a place where they live together and they, and they study. And I used to be very devoted to this model. I mean, I really believe in the importance of a residential experience, in part because I think the students can learn so much from each other. But as you know, I have a critique of modern, the way modern colleges are being run which doesn't actually support the kind of conversations between students that, in my view, leads to real learning. If anything, yeah. we have a kind of ideological monoculture, which um, makes it much harder to get the benefits of a residential education, in my view. So maybe that also will militate against it. I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict that in many ways. Well, so, so let's, uh, let's bring it into the end zone. But to make this personal for a moment, because I, I, mean, I often wonder what people can draw from a conversation like this in terms of their day-to-day living, mm. unless we, we spell out some kind of recommendation. But how, how locked down have you been and are you yeah. going to be for the, the foreseeable future? I mean, what are you not doing and doing that yeah. it may be um, up for rational debate, but at least it's, um, yeah. you, you've settled on various 
menu items for yourself and are not rethinking them on a daily basis? That's a very good question. I think, um, first of all, the overarching thing I would say is that there is no life without risk in a time of pandemic. You know, a deadly germ is on the loose and everything you do has some risk. And it's, you didn't have to think about it a year ago, but now when you go to the grocery store or you take your kid to summer camp or you decide whether to go to church or whatever decision you're making, unfortunately, you have to factor into that a consideration of the risk. You know, do you, 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 your neighbor just got discharged and came home from the hospital and you are deciding whether to go over and give them a welcome home basket? Do you leave it on that door stoop as if they're a plague house or do you ring the bell and have polite conversation? Every single little decision has some risk and, and that is a stress, you know, that's a stressor. And in my household, we've accepted that. You know, we, we almost, in a way, we have like a COVID risk budget. You know, we have a certain amount of risk we're willing to take. And we'll say, you know, actually, we, we haven't been out of the house in three weeks. We're going to go to an outdoor restaurant today. Or, you know, we've been really good. We've been ordering all our food online and have been going grocery shopping. So we're going to enroll our 10-year-old in, in horseback riding lessons or something, you know, mm. which involves uh, having contact with a stranger, uh, you know, with masks and everything else. But so I think the first point I would make is that people have to understand that there is risk, have to tolerate some risk unless they're willing to be hermits, which is you know, not advisable. I mean, it's advisable from a public health point of view, but it's not an easy way to live and has some health consequences as well. And they have to think rationally about it, what is their own level of tolerance and which activities have higher and lower risk. Second, people do need to learn like what is riskier and what is not. And much of this now is common knowledge. You know, outdoor interactions are less risky. Quiet interactions are less risky. Brief interactions are less risky. It's more risky to hug and kiss someone than to touch a surface. We, we haven't touched on that today, but at the beginning of the epidemic, in fact, even when you and I last spoke, I think in March, we, I think, I can't remember for sure, we probably talked about fomite transmission or mm. can you get the pathogen from touching surfaces? And the answer seems to be not so easily, which is why many people, when the delivery guy delivers their packages, most Americans have stopped you know, wiping down their packages obsessively. And we don't have much evidence that, that, it's, it's harm, that, that that's necessary, in fact. Now, you should wash your hands after you open the package and unpack it and so on. But you know, I don't think this kind of obsessive surgical antisepsis that many people were engaged in early on is required. So we've learned more about the pathogen. We've learned what's risky. People should understand what their own tolerance for risk is and should, and should uh, act mm. and learn what's risky and act accordingly. But there are other things that I think um, that are necessary, which is I do think people do need to do the, the basics. I think mask wearing when they're outside, keeping six foot distance, avoiding crowded places, uh, hand washing, you know, all these basic hygiene measures I think are very sensible and everyone should, should be doing, not incidentally just for themselves. And this is another point that I want to reiterate, although again, this is widely known now. The reason you wear a mask is not so much to protect yourself, although you do, it's to protect others, to, to avoid your body being a vehicle of transmission. You get it from Bob and then transmit it to Susie. Your wearing a mask prevents you from being that vector. And it's a good, it's an honorable, brave, good thing to do to wear a mask. It's good neighborliness. Same with keeping your distance, same with the other stuff. In my household, we're still, unfortunately, given the lack of testing in our society, it's putting a real break on our economy. So for example, when you think about how great it would be if you could have rapid, accurate testing, 
This means you could go about your business. You could go into the office, be tested. You, would, you could be cleared. Now, there's a small chance you just got the germ the moment before you were tested, but by and large, such testing would make it easier to resume more normal interactions. Example, my daughter, who is an artist in New York City, wants to come and visit us. My wife and I are in our 50s. We would love to see our daughter. The question is, what's the procedure? Should she come and quarantine for 14 days? Actually, we use 11 days in my household because all of these things are probabilities. And so by 11 and a half days, only about 5% of people are still infectious. By 14 days, even after 14 days, people could still be infectious, about 2.5% of people. So you, you can have the disease, do a 14-day quarantine, and on the 16th day, give it to someone else. It's not, you know, these are probabilities, they're not certainties. Anyway, we use 11 days in my household because it gets us down to about 95%, according to one study. So does she come to my home and quarantine for 11 days in her bedroom and we deliver her meals to her? We can't hug her. We can't sit in the same room with her. That's awful. Or do we have her tested? And if we could have access to inexpensive and rapid testing, she could be tested when she got home. She's negative. We wait two more days or three if we want to be extra conservative, test her again. If she's negative, then we don't have to have her in quarantine anymore. I mean, this would be an unbelievable benefit Mm. to our lifestyles in this nation. Why the federal government hasn't organized to provide, you know, make investments that would make such a way of living possible is another failing, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. Would, yeah, well, I'm even, sure every even, listener listening to this can relate to what I'm saying and, and says, gee, that would be great. <laughs> you know, I, would, I wish I could go to the local pharmacy, have a test, and then go back three days later and then be cleared of quarantine. Well, yeah. So, so those tests or, or what purport to be those tests are available. But you know, at what reliability and cost? Yeah, it seems an open question. But yeah. more important, when are we going to get to widespread real-time testing? I know there are tests that purport yes. to give you a, a you know a result in 15 minutes. Yes. Presumably, what's happening around the president and other figures like the president yes. is not the 72-hour or 48-hour test. Yes. Do you do you I have think... any insight into when we could yeah. expect that? No, the technology does exist. It has to be, you know, go through some some uh, government review and costs, economies of scale of production. I have one friend, Jonathan Rothberg, who's who's invented such a a test and uh, is seeking to commercialize it. A very smart guy, and there are others similar tests available or on the horizon. The economic, like you can imagine, a scenario in which you had a little COVID appliance in your home, in which when people came, they were tested. And uh, 15 minutes later, you knew whether it was safe to interact with them. And many people would pay a lot for such an appliance. And I think that technology exists. Now, there's certain epidemiological constraints on the accuracy. It's still, even that's not going to be 100% certain for a variety of reasons, but it would go a long way towards normalizing our lives. Now, whether it is going to make economic sense to have such an appliance will depend a lot on when a vaccine emerges and how good it is and how long the virus stays in our, you know, not the virus will be with us forever, but how long the virus remains a significant threat. Because, you know, people aren't going to invest, a man on the street is not going to buy such a COVID appliance. I mean, super rich people will, of course, buy them. But, you know, whether they are commercially and easily available, home-based COVID instant testing will depend a lot on the economies of scale that will be driven by whether, you know, every home wants one. Well, I think more likely we're going to wind up with the you know, iPhone 16 app-based test wherein you, you, can, you can test for COVID, but then 
than many other diseases well, as they come spit, online. You'd right? have to spit onto your phone somehow. So the bio <laughs> no, no, it would be, uh, no doubt there'd be an attachment, not actually yeah, on the exactly. phone. Yes. I want to ask you a few more specific yeah. questions about what you yeah. do and don't do. So when's the last time you went to the dentist? And when's the next time you will go to the dentist for something other than an emergency? Uh, I actually had a dental emergency last week, and I went to the dentist mm. here in, uh, in Vermont. Actually, he's in New Hampshire. And then I uh, have a regularly scheduled appointment with him in a month. I think actually dentists are, very, are always quite hygienic and are very concerned for themselves. And I actually think going to a dentist is probably reasonably safe. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily go just for a luxury teeth cleaning or a teeth whitening. Mm. Again, that's a question of risk. You know, why take that risk if you don't have to? But, you know, I think if you need dental care, you should go to your dentist. Yes, I do. And I do. And I have gone right. to my dentist, yes. And as far as, far as I know, is there, there's no evidence that this is foodborne, right? Has anyone got this from no. eating something contaminated? Not to our knowledge. There was some rumors about salmon exports in China, and it was unclear whether the Chinese were trying to politicize our food exports or what was going on there. I don't think there have been any reliable foodborne transmission. It can be fecally transmitted, uh, the virus. So there's uh, right from the beginning, we knew this. And this is typical of coronaviruses. So, you know, public restrooms can be contaminated and, and they should be a place of concern to people. Again, risk, you know, like if you're, if you, you know, squat on the toilet and wash your hands and wash the toilet seat and do all the other stuff, you're not going to get it in all probability. But, you know, if you're not careful, you could. So there is, but, but that suggests, I mean, that would be fecal oral or yeah, either inhaled or, or oral. Yes, you have uh -huh. to let's say touch something and then touch your eyes or your nose. That's right, or your mouth. You have to get it into your body. That's exactly right. But then, then, then food handling would still be a concern. I mean, so for instance, I mean, to sharpen this up, if you're going to get food delivered from a restaurant, do you eat only food that you can reheat or that's hot, or would you eat no a salad or a sandwich? Yeah, in my household, we don't. We eat what we order from restaurants. We, uh, after we unpackage the foods, we wash our hands, and then we, uh, we might dump the foods onto our own plates or something like that. And I'm not familiar with any outbreaks associated with foods. Now, there may be some I just don't know, and maybe one of your million listeners will email me or tweet at me and say, here's a case or mm. a case report or something. But I'm not at this moment familiar with any foodborne outbreaks of coronavirus. It is, can be transmitted uh, fecally, but it's not the major transmission route. So just to be clear, you, you don't reheat food you, you've taken delivery of, you just eat the food? Yes, correct. All right. Well, then I'm to the left of you or to the right of you, depending <laughs> on what, in terms of, the, in terms of paranoia or, or risk aversion. Or hypochondria. Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. Well, um, Nicholas, as always, it's, uh, it's been a, uh, an education and quite a happy one, despite the, the gravity of the topics we're, no, we're touching. No, thank you. Thank you for giving attention to this topic. I think our nation has a long way to go still. And I, I'm hopeful. I hope the book helps people to come to grips with what it is that we are facing. And I, I want to end on the optimistic note, which is that I do think we're going to see the other side of this. We're not the first generation of people to have to confront a respiratory pandemic, and we won't be the last. And I just, I'm, I'm hoping for a saner, more rational, safer, and better response in the coming years. But I, I'm, I think we will get it. So thank you, Sam, for having me on very much. Once again, the book is Apollo's Arrow, and uh, it is available right now. Thanks again, Nicholas. I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. Mm -hmm.